the text for the sermon tonight, Exodus chapter 2. We'll talk about the uh, context a little bit, so don't worry if you missed chapter 1. Uh, we'll talk about it uh, in just a moment. So Exodus chapter 2, and we'll read uh, the entire chapter. This is the word of our God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was good, she hid him for three months. When she could not hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. And now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the, saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him up out of the water. And one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. So Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, oh, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with a man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. 
and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we come before your word, may you uh, illumine our hearts by your spirit so that we may not only understand, but that we might also submit ourselves to your word. Teach us how to live. Teach us, Lord, how to trust you, how to submit ourselves to you in faith. May you fill us by your grace and point us to your son, Jesus Christ because he is the word and the life and the truth. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's a question. Uh, Why does God use the people that he uses? In other words, uh, who does God consistently, over and over and over again in scripture, who does he use? What kinds of people? Is it the, the powerful, the awesome, the super attractive, the amazing people? Or is it the weak and the lowly and the poor and the nobodies that God loves to use? It's the nobodies. In fact, in the previous chapter, chapter one, uh, Pharaoh instituted a, a statewide mandate that every Hebrew son had to be thrown into the river. They had to be killed. And God, in his grace, uh, was saving some of them. How was he doing it? By two Hebrew midwives. Two midwives. Two women, unknown and obscure, and yet, God knows their names. They are named in chapter 1, while Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, went unnamed. That is what God loves to do. God loves to take lowly nobodies, who he knows, and use them uh, to show his power, to show his glory, so that he might be the one who gets all the credit. And so we see over and over and over again in scripture, who does God choose? Does he choose uh, Jesse's firstborn, or does he choose David, the youngest and the runt, right? Who does Jesus continue to use as his disciples? He finds fishermen, people who are just regular people. God delights to use uh, the weak and the, the regular and the nobodies. He delights to use them. But there's a danger. There's a danger to those whom the Lord sets apart. There's a danger to those whom the Lord uh, has set them apart to use for his glory, for his purposes. Uh, the danger is that you can forget where you came from. Now that you have been endued or endowed with this glorious purpose, it gets to your head and suddenly you are the one doing it. You are the one accomplishing God's will. You are the one getting the glory. You are the one who's going to do amazing things for God and everyone's gonna see how great you are. Uh, there's a word for this, a couple words, Messiah complex, right? Someone who believes that they are a Messiah. Someone who, in your own mind, you're doing a good thing, and yet you are out of whack with God's will, out of step with God's heart.
And it isn't long when someone tries to take things into their own hands, when they try to do things their way, for their own glory, that things go wrong. And that everything falls apart because it isn't long until they're hit in the face with their own inability, their own weakness uh, and frailty. And I think this is what we see in chapter two. We see a man set apart by the Lord for a, an amazing purpose. Moses is going to release his people from slavery and from bondage. He is going to be the one that the Lord uses to lead Israel out of Egypt. And yet, somehow Moses messes everything up. He takes things into his own hands. And he fails. And his world crumbles. But even this is part of the Lord's plan for Moses' life. Even this is how the Lord is still preparing Moses for this purpose that he has raised him up to do. So let's look. Let's look at the chapter and see how is the Lord setting Moses apart? How is the Lord uh, communicating that Moses is, is someone special, that there's going to be a purpose for him? Then how does Moses mess it up? And then how do we see that the Lord is, has been using this to humble Moses? So as we open up uh, this chapter, remember that Pharaoh had instituted this edict. Every male Hebrew child had to be killed. And it's in this context that suddenly a child is born. This woman conceives and she bears a son. Now, the little details are important in this story. Uh, so you might see uh, that in verse 2, it says that she saw that he was a fine child, if you have the ESV. I'm not quite sure why they translated it as, as fine, uh, because it kind of makes it sound like he's attractive, he's healthy, he's a vibrant baby. But a better way to think about it uh, is that she looks and she sees that this child is good. That already something is different about him. Not just in the way that any mother would look at their child. Any mom looks at their kid and says, that's a good child. That's the best looking child, the best attractive child, the best sports or uh, talent child, all of that thing, all those things. But something about Moses is special enough that the text has to say to us, he's good in a way that makes us think back to creation. Right? The Lord looks and sees that his creation is good, and this mom looks and sees that her child is good. But there's another clue, another uh, thing that the text, another detail that the text uh, draws attention to to show us that God is doing something, that something about him is, is unique. So this mother, she takes her child and she hides him and she seeks to protect him, but she cannot do it forever. And so she comes up with a plan. She's going to follow Pharaoh's directive, but she's found a loophole. She is going to throw him in the river, but Pharaoh didn't say anything about having a little boat there for him. So she creates uh, this basket. Uh, she dubs it with things to keep the water outside of the basket. Uh, but the little detail that we are supposed to see uh, that the ESV kind of glazes over is the ESV says it's a basket that she makes. But this word only shows up in a, uh, another place, another place in Scripture. And that word uh, is in Genesis, and it's Noah's Ark. 
So really what she does is she makes an ark for the child. And she places Moses in this ark and then places the ark in the water. And so the waters of destruction, the waters of judgment, the waters of, of tears of many mothers and fathers by the Lord's providence become a means of deliverance for this child. It means that the Lord actually saves this child and communicates that he is, is special. And notice another detail. In fact, lots of details. Right? How many details does it give us about how she created this ark? Right? It tells us that she made this ark. It tells us what she made it out of, how she waterproofed it, where she put it, where she set her, his sister a century. But it doesn't tell us at all what she expected to happen. Right? What did she hope was going to happen? that she puts him in the riverbank and prays that he doesn't get eaten by crocodiles or that he gets found by someone who will have pity on him, right? Whatever is going on in her head, things that might be reasonable for us to assume, the text does not tell us. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think the reason is that it's not about what she's doing. It's about what God is doing. It's about what the Lord is doing and how he is preparing this child, how he is delivering this child, because then look at all the coincidences that start to happen. She puts the child uh, in the river and sets the sister a sentry, and then the daughter of Pharaoh just happens to come by, just happens to find the basket, just happens to open it, just happens to see this child, and just happens to say, this child is, is good and have pity on it. And the sister just happens to be there and just happens to say to her, well, you know what? I know someone who could go and nurse this child for you. And then goes and gets the child's mother who then just happens to be paid to nurse her own kid. And this child just happens to become the daughter, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's a lot of coincidences. But we see that the Lord is now setting Moses apart and placing him in Pharaoh's household. Not completely unlike what he did with Joseph. Right? What someone intended for evil, uh, Joseph's brothers sending him off to Egypt, where Joseph then becomes positioned in Pharaoh's household by the Lord so that when a famine hits, God's people might have food. Now God is putting Moses in Pharaoh's household and setting him apart. And then uh, Pharaoh's daughter gives him a name in verse 10, a name that is ironic a little bit because she calls him Moses because I drew him out of the water, but really it was God. Really, God is the one who drew Moses out of the water. And Moses becomes her son. That's verse 10. So how do you think all of this affected Moses. What was it like for Moses to grow up, partly being raised by his Hebrew mother, hearing the story, right, of how the Lord spared him, how all the other Hebrew male children were being killed, and yet the Lord had spared his life and saved him. And yet he's also growing up in Pharaoh's household, 
a household with that soft Pharaoh as, as divine, that that is God. And so Moses, maybe there's a little bit of him that starts to believe that kind of thing. Maybe Moses starting to believe that, yeah, the Lord has set him apart for something and he's gonna seize the day. He has a glorious purpose that he has to live up to. And I think we see that in what he then goes on to do. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. So we're not entirely sure why Moses decides to do this. Right? Why does one day he suddenly decide to go out and to look on the burdens of the Hebrew people? We're not even told what he thought he would see. What did he expect? But he saw an Egyptian a taskmaster beating a Hebrew. Now, before we look at what he does do, what do you think he would do? What should he have done? Perhaps that's a vague question. Perhaps that's a, a wisdom question. There's probably as many answers as there are people in this room. But here's a couple of things that he could do. He could leverage his position, right? He's in Pharaoh's household. He has authority. Or maybe he sees that there is a, there's a severe problem. People, the Israel people are being enslaved brutally. That their children are being killed. And he could see that the, there's a, a root of the problem. It's not just one Egyptian beating a Hebrew, but that Pharaoh himself has instituted this. But instead, what Moses does in verse 12 is he looks this way and that. He deliberates. He makes sure no one's watching. And seeing that he was alone, he killed the Egyptian. He took a life. Now, there's a couple of ways we could look at this, this act. We could see this uh, in a positive light. We could see this as an act of justice that Moses was protecting the innocent, protecting someone who could not protect themselves, that because of his position in Pharaoh's household, perhaps he would be able to get away with it, and this person, this Hebrew, could go free. But we could also look at it on the other spectrum, right? We could look at this as, as a dark act of vengeance, that this is not justice, but this is retribution. In fact, this is far more than the Egyptian was doing to the Hebrew. Did that man deserve to die? But like with most of life, it's probably not so black or so white. Often it's, it's pretty gray. I think Moses believed that he was doing something good that he believed that he was, he was accomplishing something good, that what he was doing was, was justice, that he saw himself as a means of, of protecting someone 
who could not protect themselves. But I think then there's also the darker side of it where Moses saw himself as the instrument for God's divine judgment, that he was going to be the one to free this Israelite. He was the one who's going to fulfill his purpose, who was going to save this person and maybe even save all of Israel. But in reality, he was completely out of step with God's will. Because how does God save Israel? Does God save Israel when nobody's looking? Does God step in to protect the innocent after making sure that no one sees? Does God strike without warning? without giving an opportunity for Egypt to repent? No. In fact, God told Pharaoh over and over and over again, here's what will happen if you do not let my people go. And God gave Pharaoh and Egypt so many opportunities to let Israel go. And God did it publicly. He went to Pharaoh he went to the king of Egypt and said to him, let my people go. Because God also understood that the problem was not just one Egyptian taskmaster. The problem was that his people were being enslaved. That Pharaoh was the one responsible. And that he, the Lord, would have to step in to save his people. So Moses was whatever he thought he was doing, even if he thought he was doing something good, was completely in left field. Because how God will continue, or how God will save Israel is in a completely different way. So Moses is not Israel's Messiah. The Lord is. And what happens next just shows how far Moses had gone down this hole. Because the next day, as though nothing had happened, he goes out again. And he sees this time two Hebrews struggling. This is verse 13. And Moses says to the man in the wrong, he looks to the man in the wrong as though Moses himself were the arbitrator, that he was going to step in and say, all right, let me settle this. Why did you strike your companion?" And what this Hebrew says, just it cuts through all the baloney. He looks at Moses and says, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Who made you the prince and the judge? That's a good question, Moses. Because if he actually were to ask himself that question, he would see that, no, he has made himself the prince and the judge. He has made himself the judge and the jury and the executioner. He is believing himself to be Israel's Messiah, driven by glorious purpose. He's going to do great things for God. But what happens is he then realizes he has made a horrible mistake. 
Because the Hebrew looks at him and says, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And lo and behold, even Pharaoh would hear about it. And Moses' position in Pharaoh's household would not be enough to save him. And so Moses has no choice but to flee. So he's rejected by the people he thought he was going to save. He's rejected by the family that he was raised in. The people that he belonged to did not want him. So the bottom just falls out of his life. Everybody he's known and everybody who's known him is now a threat. And he has to run to Midian, a land far away, a land where nobody knows who he is. His dreams have been crushed. His purpose has evaporated. Everything that he thought he was and that he would do is gone. And the almighty Moses is now uh, reduced to settling local land disputes. As some daughters of the priests of Midian try to water uh, their flocks, some shepherds come and, and try to chase them off. And Moses stands up and protects the daughters of this priest. And his most significant achievement is now the fact that he has watered these flocks. Flocks of a man that he does not know. And people who do not know him, who look at him and think him to be an Egyptian. In other words, Moses has become a nobody. And that's exactly where God wants him. Because God doesn't need Moses to be a gung-ho Messiah who stands up and kills every Egyptian, if that was his plan, in order to free Israel. God doesn't need him to be amazing a rock star, a superhero. In fact, when he goes into the land of Midian and stays there for a long time, he is not absent from God, nor is God absent from him. Because uh, the name of this priest is Ruel, which means friend of God. And that's significant because the same priest will be called Jethro in chapter 3. Moses' his father-in-law. But here it calls him Ruel, as if to say to the reader and to Moses, God is still with you. And God blesses him and gives him a wife and a son. And we see uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, that Moses becomes a shepherd. He becomes a nobody tending the flocks of some guy in a land far away from where he grew up. 
But that is where the Lord wants him. Because the next verses, 23 through 25, are the Lord saying, now I am going to save Israel. Let's read verses 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. God knew his people. God knew what his people were going through. He knew their sufferings. He knew the problem, and he knew what needed to be done. And he was willing to do it because he remembered his covenant. And he's ready to act, not through superstar Moses, but through a nobody Moses, through a shepherd in the land of Midian, that is who the Lord is then going to call to go to Israel and to bring Israel out. The Lord wanted him humbled and a nobody because that's who God loves to use. He loves to use the nobodies so that he, God, gets all the credit. So God doesn't need you either to be a rock star Christian, to be the best Christian there's ever been and to do amazing things for God uh, and, and to be looked at by everybody and say, wow, that's amazing. This person is doing so much. God needs nobodies. God wants nobodies. God wants people being faithful in the lands of Midian, doing little things, being faithful trusting in him, walking by faith, and most of all, giving him the glory. That is who the Lord delights to use. And if we see that heart and how he wants us to act, all we have to do is turn around and look at God and see that he does the same thing. That is how God works too. Because when Jesus comes, does he come uh, as, as born to the most important, prestigious family in the world? No. He's born to a couple of nobodies in a manger. He's born in a barn. He's born as a nobody. And yet, he was this true Messiah, the savior of his people. That is the heart of the Lord. Uh, the creator of the universe, the one who holds everything in his hands, was willing to become a nobody. Deserving of recognition and every single praise and glory and honor that could be heaped on him. And yet, he was willing to be rejected, despised, spat upon, by the very people he came to save. The very people that he came to save would reject him. And yet he died for them. 
He died for you. He died for me. A bunch of nobodies. So that we can see his heart and see how amazing our God is. So let's respond to him with faith, with humility, willing to be nobodies, and just willing to see what he will do. Amen? Amen.